0: Take your Bibles with me again and let's go to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We'll continue our series through this brief letter. We're looking this morning at verses 6 through 9. Titus 1, 6 through 9. We'll begin this morning reading verses 5 through 11. Titus 1 and verse 5. Let's read that together. This is God's word for us, his people. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed or I commanded you. If anyone is above reproach, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers or faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination... For an overseer, and there that's referring to the elder again, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Let's ask for his help as we consider this text together this morning. Gracious God, we recognize that we need to understand what you've written to us and that is not within our own power and our wills to do. So may your spirit who has authored these words for our benefit, for our instruction, may he open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. May you give us the wisdom to know how to apply these things to our own church family. In Jesus' name, amen. Theologian and pastor from the late 19th century once wrote, better circumstances do not make better men. Sometimes we think that maybe they will. A better economy, though, does not make better men. Nor a more peaceful time without war or international conflict. A church with the best programs or the biggest offerings are not what God uses to provide spiritual health. Those things, while they may be important in their place, are not the primary tools for growing his people. What does make a person better, more spiritually healthy, better in character? Better in behavior, what does God provide to His people, to His church, when they recognize their deficiencies in leadership and character? We're not surprised to see again in this text that He provides to us His word as taught by godly examples. The church, the churches in Crete on this island, the several churches there that are new, that are immature, that are needing growth. They need both of these things. In this letter, Paul is convinced. He's determined to provide to them what they need. These immature churches in disarray is in need. They are in need of godly leadership. They're in need of those who will equip them with sound doctrine. Who will correct false teachers. What we see again in this text is that Christ builds up his church through the faithful stewardship of godly leaders. Now before we begin to look at the specifics of these qualifications, there's several introductory comments I would like to make to kind of set the stage for us. First, let's be reminded again that leadership in the church is very different from how it's so often practiced in our world. Church leaders are shepherds Of God's flock. They're not serving at their own will or wish. Paul is telling us to look for humble servants. We saw that even in the first description that Paul gave of himself I am a slave of God. This means that spiritual leaders never, never have any reason. To be puffed up or conceited because they have some position of influence or leadership. They don't take pride in a title or opportunity to lead. Leading like Christ means sacrificial, humble service. And what needs to come into the mind of every member of a church, every leader in a church, is that we follow Christ's example as he washes his disciples' That needs to be the commitment of both leaders and members in a body. Shepherds are to keep in mind Jesus's words to Peter. Feed my flock, tend my sheep. It also means greater accountability before both God and men. James pointedly admonishes, not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Hebrews 13 and Acts 20 reminds leaders that we will give an account to God for those that he has purchased with his own blood. This is not ordinary human leadership. This is an incredibly sobering task. If you're eager to jump into leadership because you think it will give you something within the church, you don't understand these texts. We dare not take lightly, nor should we consider any man capable of serving in his own strength or personal giftedness. Elders have great privilege and opportunity to serve God and his people, but they must keep in sight this overwhelmingly important responsibility. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to your life and your teaching, Persevere in these things. Keep doing this. For by doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers. A godly life and godly teaching is able to bring people to faith in Christ. To grow them up in him. That's the commitment. So church family as as we first begin to think through this. Can I urge you with greatest sincerity to pray for your pastors in this way. As we look at passages like this that talk about the requirements for spiritual leadership, this should sober us. This should frighten us who are leaders that we would serve in our own strength. Pray for your pastors to be faithful. Pray for them and then follow them for your good and God's glory. Speak respectfully and humbly of them and to them. They're men. They're mere men. They're sinful men. But they're the leaders God has given you. There are no perfect congregations. There are no perfect pastors. So we look to a perfect Christ together. When you have questions about a need or decision. Go to them with an attitude that is eager to listen. Eager to learn. And humble in speech. Treat them as you would want to be treated. Elders again, are still sinners in need of God's grace. And what we're seeing in this passage is we've talked about elders leading in plurality. They need other men to help them to speak into their life. They're modeling that in front of you, humbly listening to others, giving themselves to accountability, letting others point out areas of weakness. So be committed to pray faithfully for your pastors. And I want you to know that your pastors are praying faithfully for you. Now, finally, we need to understand that no one but Christ meets these qualifications perfectly. And isn't that really the point? God never intends for us ultimately to cling to a man or to put our dependence in a great leader. So often we're disappointed and we fail when we do that. We put our hopes that if we get just the right leader, things will go better. Our circumstances will be turned around. But our hope is in only one leader, our King Jesus Christ. Godly leaders merely help us follow that Christ. Think of what Paul says when he commands, follow me as I follow Christ. An elder is a man whose life is worth copying, an example worth following, as he is committed to following Christ. Now, we need to keep in mind that the majority of the character qualifications in this list are prescribed elsewhere in Scripture for every single believer. This is a list of ordinary characteristics that every believer is to pursue. Together they describe a spiritually mature person. One who has been walking with Christ. One that we can follow with confidence saying, I I want to be like that man as he seeks to be like Christ. This kind of maturity takes time. It takes continual intentional effort. So the overseer is intended by God to model and lead the believer into the kind of spiritual health that we're all to strive for. So as we work through these character qualities... Ask yourself, examine your life, consider your heart. Where do you need to be growing from what we see listed here in this passage? I'm going to encourage you to do something dangerous. Ask your spouse, ask your children, ask another member where you need to grow. But also ask them where they are seeing some of these things portrayed in your life, where you can give God praise and credit for the work that he's doing. This morning we'll consider three aspects of an elder's maturity in these requirements. Elders must demonstrate spiritual maturity in the home, in their personal character, and in their commitment to God's Word. So first, an elder must demonstrate spiritual maturity in his home. Verse 6 begins, if anyone is above reproach the husband of one wife. This overriding characteristic shapes the entire list of qualifications, and it comes here at the beginning. It's mentioned again there in verse 7. It's also mentioned again in 1 Timothy chapter 3, above reproach. The meaning of above reproach is one who is blameless. Now note, that doesn't mean that he's flawless or faultless or sinless. He is to be a man of integrity. He doesn't live one way in public and another way in private. When he sins, he is quick to confess and ask for forgiveness. This man is a model and provides a pattern that no one can accuse, charge, or question with any degree of credibility. He's a mature, godly man. In verse 6, we come to the phrase, the husband of one wife. Now, historically, there have been a number of different interpretations of what this verse actually means when it's applied in the church. Some have claimed that it's a prohibition against polygamy. But that is probably not the focus as that is so obviously true. Some of the early church fathers applied this phrase to mean that if a man's wife died, he became a widow, remarriage for him, or a widower, rather, remarriage for him would disqualify him as an elder. Others have said that if a man was divorced at a younger point in his life, he could never become an elder later in his life. But Paul is focusing on a man's present spiritual maturity in these voices, in these verses, I don't think that those three characteristics or those three situations apply. It's not about the sins that he's committed in the past. Would a man be disqualified if he used to be self-willed, quick-tempered, or addicted to alcohol in his past? Do past evidences of spiritual immaturity in these areas disqualify him for service now? If so, then who could qualify? If Paul is saying you have to have lived a life of perfection from the time you were a believer on, who could qualify? That doesn't seem to be his point. Paul's concerned with present godly character rather than past immature behavior. We have to be careful to understand the context and what Paul's intending to do. We're not trying to lower the standards. We're trying to understand them in the context. If we apply these two woodenly, then Jesus and Paul could not have met these qualifications themselves. And Paul would be contradicting himself what what he writes in other portions of Scripture. If we take this qualification woodenly, a single man cannot be an elder. And yet, Paul the apostle, the former murderer, and persecutor of the church is writing with great authority. Also, based on the next qualification, every every elder has to have at least more than one child. But that seems to be missing the point. Now, I do want to say I understand there are many faithful believers who take a different specific view of these phrases, and that is just fine. We should be charitable in our conversations to one another as we examine the scriptures themselves and be willing to discuss the differences in how we apply these phrases. The attempt here, my attempt this morning, is to understand this as it applies in real churches with real sinners who are seeking to grow. It's not an attempt to minimize God's requirements for leaders. That's a discussion we can have around these phrases and say, well, why would you take it this way or that way? Now, the best literal translation of the Greek phrase here in verse 6 is a one woman man. That's the most direct literal translation of the Greek. The phrase calls us to ask, is this man devoted to his wife alone in action and even in his private life? thought life an elder should be a man with a track record of being above reproach in his relationship with his wife and that's observable from the church family he honors her he cherishes her he sets a godly example of this before other believers before a watching world he's to be devoted to his own wife and careful in his relationships with other women The second phrase here in the second half of verse 6 presents one of the most difficult in the letter to interpret now. It says his children are believers in the ESV and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This phrase, his children are believers, is probably best translated as his children are faithful. One excellent, skilled commentator He's a scholar in the Greek New Testament. He notes, while the Greek word can mean believing, this meaning is less likely here in view of the context and the parallel in 1 Timothy 3. Not to mention the theological difficulties of squaring such a requirement with the doctrine of salvation. And the question of how new churches could have had enough men with converted children at this early stage. You know that many godly men have had children who've rebelled against God in spite of their godly example. We saw this in the life of Samuel. He was a godly man consistently uh, presented in that book and yet his children did not walk after him. The rest of the phrase should be seen as clarifying what it means that his children are faithful. The way these two words are used in the rest of the New Testament lead us to conclude that Paul isn't referring to occasional disobedience. As you're considering elders, you're not supposed to say, well, I saw their children disobey once out on the playground. It's, is there a consistent pattern? Is there a pattern of deep-seated rebellion against parental authority? So the principle here in this requirement is that an elder must be faithfully seeking to shepherd his own children. Is he doing the job of discipleship in his own home? His wife cannot feel like she is shouldering the burden of correction, instruction, and discipline alone. If that's a constant conversation at home, he's not ready to serve in the church. He cannot be passive. God intends for parents together and fathers in particular to lead their homes toward godliness. A man with children who are continually out of control, going unconfronted and uncorrected, he is not qualified to lead in the church. That's what Paul's saying. He puts it this way in First Timothy 3, 4 and 5. He must be one who manage his, his, he manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? One commentator concludes, the home is to be regarded as the training ground for Christian leaders. And men, these are not just requirements for the church leaders. Where might you need to focus your attention exert your godly influence exert some spiritual energy in your leadership at home i want you to see paul starts here and that's where each man in the church is to start how am i shepherding at home am i leading toward godliness You must lead in the home, proactively shepherding your wife and children with grace and gentleness to the Lord. And when you recognize you need help doing that, then you need to reach out to a pastor and get help. Reach out to another fellow godly member. God intends for our leadership in the home to reflect his faithful, loving, serving leadership for his people I want you to hear that carefully. Again, that's so different than how our world thinks of leadership. Our world thinks of leadership as authority. And you all need to do my way. Men, I want you to see in the home, you are to lead lovingly, gently, with care. We must be careful not to raise our voices and intimidate and use aggression, Certainly, there are times to be exercised over sin happening in our home. But it must be done with a desire to see our children follow God, not just because they're irritating us. How is that going in your own homes? Secondly, an elder must demonstrate spiritual maturity in his personal character. In his personal character. What we see in this list of qualifications is that in the church, Character always trumps ability. If you don't see anything else of the specifics, I want you to get this point. Character always trumps ability. We must be committed to finding the right kind of men that God would have us follow as we consider servant leadership in our church. And we should always be more committed to pursuing men of godly character than those with the skills we admire most. If you count up the number of qualifications in these four verses, there are 15 different character qualifications. And only one is focused on ability. Think of that. Just one. His ability to handle the word. We so often consider, are attracted to those... Who's the best at this thing or that area? Who can get the most done? Who's the most qualified to work over this specific area of ministry? Which person is the best with money? Is he an engaging speaker? But the focus here is not primarily on his giftedness. It's overwhelmingly focused on how the gospel is changing this man. How it's maturing this man from the inside out. His character is a model for the whole body. Now in verse 7, Paul uses a title. He says that the elder is God's steward. Why do you think Paul inserts this title here in verse 7? A steward Was responsible for his master's house. He did not have the uh, authority to operate however he wanted, according to his own wishes. He was a man under authority. An elder or overseer in God's church is under the authority of King Jesus. Do you see? Paul is intent on reminding of this. He's not to choose to lead the church in the direction that he desires. Nor is he free to shepherd by any means of his own design. The elder is clearly God's servant, responsible to embrace God's methods for accomplishing his purposes. So first, let's see the negative character flaws he's not to have. First, he must not be arrogant. He must not be overbearing or self-willed, as some translations put it. The word here is literally self pleasing. His authority is not to promote himself and his agenda. An elder should be someone who's flexible in his own opinions, considerate of other viewpoints, and especially open and eager to do God's will with God's people. He must guard against the tendency to seek to use authority to get his own way. Second, he must not be quick-tempered. Paul's pointing out that a man who's unable to have control of his own emotions will do a poor job leading others in the many decisions that come with pastoral ministry. Now I want you to think of this in the context of these are all going to be temptations that elders, that pastors, overseers will face as they serve God. Shepherding a voluntary group of people often discussing matters of importance, of great emotional weight, will present opportunities for irritation and anger. So an elder must be able to rein in his frustrations that will naturally arise from working with people. He must do this because they are God's people. They're his sheep. And he is to repent when he fails to do so. I'm reminded of just how often how easy it would have been for Jesus to have been angry or irritable with his spiritually dull disciples. This is the master teacher, the greatest leader to ever walk on this planet. And his followers are about as bright, I don't know, as kindergartners. They they just don't seem to understand anything. They're in kindergarten of Christianity. They're not hearing him. And yet Jesus exercises great patience with them. And he does so with me as well. Every man in an authority position, whether at home or at work, every believer should address a spirit of anger in his life when it's present. We've all failed in this way at one point or another, haven't we? How it damages the relationships with those we love the most. Confess that sin and turn from it. Third, he must not be a drunkard. An elder must not be controlled by alcohol. It has an incredible ability to, in- to intoxicate. And an elder must not allow his judgment to be impaired by any such addictive substance. Number four, he must not be violent. Now, doesn't this seem like a strange trait to list as something to avoid? Since it should be rather obvious. Perhaps you've been in some pretty contentious Church meetings. I'm not sure I've ever seen anybody go to blows in those meetings. But perhaps this is part of what's happening in these churches. Some very ungodly, fleshly men are in leadership. But I think it could be a little broader than just physical violence. Certainly that's included. But he must not be verbally combative either. The point here is that an elder should not be a man who solves conflicts, with intimidation or aggressiveness. He's not abusing his position. Five, he must not be greedy for gain. An elder must be willing to serve for eternal purposes. If he's to model maturity with his money, and yet he's seen to be laying up treasure on earth, how can he lead God's people to invest their lives in eternity? Next, we turn to positive character qualities, that he's required to have one he must be hospitable not only must the previous traits not characterize his life he must be demonstrating christian virtues he's to be hospitable devoted to the welfare of others he's to be regularly demonstrating care for the burdens and needs of others he shouldn't have to be reminded to do this this is action and attitude He welcomes others both into his home and into his life. And this trait, again, we're told it's to be true of every believer. We're all to be hospitable. So when we're gathered together, be proactive in looking for those who are often not engaged with conversation with others. In your life groups, reach out to maybe somebody who's a little more quiet than you are. I'm so encouraged by how well I see you practicing this regularly so let's keep growing by looking out for those who need to be brought in and cared for by our church family pay attention to guests and visitors those who you might not be familiar with maybe even risk embarrassing yourself by saying are you a visitor here there's there's many people here you may not know all the members that's okay that's okay Break out of your groups where you're most comfortable in order to welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. Second, he must be a lover of good. This is a man who loves what is good. He pursues both good and eternal things with his life and with his relationships, with his friendships. Third, he must be self-controlled. He's to be a man who's seeking to master his mind, his emotions, his words and deeds. The focus here is that he is a sensible man, not easily influenced toward the extremes. He's steady and intentional. He must be upright. He's to be committed to doing what is right. He's to be just in that he's fair. He's not partial to those who can make him look good. He seeks to care for everyone equally within his sphere of influence number five he must be holy he should be demonstrating a life separated to devotion and service for god this word refers to practical holiness so he takes god's word seriously he's not careless or flippant about the things of god do you see how ordinary this is this is to be described of all of us Lastly, he must be disciplined. The final trait is listed as the last of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The Greek term indicates power of lordship over oneself. It it kind of is a summary description. Paul uses the same word for an athlete who's focused intently, intentionally on training his body for the field and for the contest. He doesn't lose sight of his goal or why he's training. Now, we should note that these are character qualities that we're looking for that are already in practice as we consider who's an elder among us. An elder should be shepherding others with God's word even before he's chosen to serve in that official role. You're not waiting for him to mature after you've given him responsibility. Likewise, deacons should be finding ways to serve needs of the body often without being asked before they're given a specific role. These observable, consistent character qualities should make the entire body eager to see this man given greater opportunity for service in a recognized, appointed office. Number three. An elder must demonstrate spiritual maturity in his commitment to God's word. Look again at verse 9 he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and now here's a purpose statement with two reasons so that he may be able to give instruction that's the first in sound doctrine it's positive and also to rebuke those who contradict it this is a man who holds firm to the word of god it's like a rock climber who's clinging To his handhold in order to keep his balance and grip on the rock face. He believes the word is reliable. You're looking for a man who loves the word. Who's investing his mind and his life and his practice in the word. It's the elder's tool for ministry. So he holds to it tenaciously. There will come assaults on this conviction. Both from inside the church and from without. There will regularly be the temptation to look away from the word, to say, well, that church seems to be doing well with that program. Maybe, maybe we should do that. He'll be tempted to look away from the word to something that seems to be more relevant or pragmatic or results oriented. What does this firm hold accomplish? First, it's encouraging, it's building. In this verse, we're told to look for godly leaders who believe the word has the answers. And when you go bring him your questions, he gives you the word. He's able to bring it to bear on various questions and scenarios in the church. He's not looking for the latest business model or psychological tactic to analyze what humans need. He says the Bible tells us what they need. Reminds me of an account of a pastoral candidate who is being interviewed for a senior pastor position in a large church with significant issues to address. In the midst of the interview process, one of the members of the pastoral search committee noted that with all of his answers, he continually leafed through his Bible and went back to Scripture. And she commented, you really do believe that the Bible has all the answers for how we're going to address the problems in our church, don't you? That's the kind of man we're looking for. That's the kind of man your pastors, your elders, your overseers should be. See, the churches here in Crete have significant problems with false teaching, with immaturity that is endangering and even destroying the faith of immature believers. The solution is the faithful teaching of God's word. It's not surprising. qualified elder is a man of the word. He demonstrates that he believes the word will build up the body of Christ. You see, only the word can give hope in a marriage that is mired in hurt and mistrust. No man has the ability to give hope where there's such heartache. Only the word can truly comfort the heart of a believer grieving the loss of a loved one. Only the Word can truly transform the mind and desires of a man or a woman given over to sexual sin. God's Word is sufficient to do God's work. Therefore, God's servants in the church must believe that by conviction and practice. Because they believe the Word is sufficient, they spend their time studying it for themselves. We could say that they are hungry for the word. Mature leaders give themselves to disciplined, faithful, committed study. So one pastor concludes, do not consider pastoral ministry yourself if you do not regularly study the word. If you don't like to study, this may not be the right time. This may not be the right ministry for you. If you're a person who avoids regular study of the word in theology, you should not seek to be an elder. All believers certainly need to be regularly reading the word, but an elder or overseer must be eager to study the word for the sake of those for whom he's ministering. If you're a person who studies the word in order to demonstrate how smart you are, your own wisdom, instead of seeking to serve God's people, then you should not seek to be an elder. What Paul is saying here is that the health of God's people depends on the elder's role in leading and feeding God's people with his truth. He must be able to communicate the truth of God's word in a helpful way, whether that's publicly in a teaching setting or in a private smaller group. If a man is not a student of the word, if he uses it to seek to impress others, he's not ready to be an elder. Next, it's useful for rebuking. There's this positive aspect of building up and a negative aspect of a commitment to the word. Not only is a qualified elder one who can teach the word, but he can identify and correct wrong thinking as well. This doesn't mean that he's argumentative. But he's also not a pushover when it comes to doctrine. He's to rebuke those who are teaching falsehood. Now rebuke here means to convict or convince with sound biblical reasoning. There is some confrontation here. But to me, what I'm understanding of Titus is that these are people within the church. These are fellow members of Christ likely. Listen to what he says in one thirteen. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. He's not saying kick them out. Perhaps these are confused false teachers. Maybe they're not as grievously uh, uh, oppressing the church by not being believers. They're just misled, misinformed, or just immature. They're leading for the sake of money or for the sake of pride. In chapter 2:15, Paul says, "Declare these things, the truth. exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The truth of the word should win out, and godly men should make sure that's so. This takes courage and biblical conviction to contradict someone in your own church family. Think of the courage it takes, the skill, the gentleness the wisdom, the patience. An elder must be able to refute the wrong ideas of those with whom he has a relationship. Now this also requires wisdom and ability to discern when and which things are most important to discuss. You must have a frame of reference. Not everything is meant to be a battle. Not everything is to be battled over. John Calvin comments on this verse a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away the wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both, and he who has been rightly instructed in it will be able both to rule those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. What we see is that our God desires to build up our church. By providing us with godly leaders who are faithful stewards of his word. So as we move in this direction the encouragement I would give to you is that this should be rather obvious to us who these men are. As we look for men to join the pastoral team in a lay capacity we should be asking who is already demonstrating this kind of spiritual maturity among us. Who is passionate about handling the word carefully and faithfully. Who is leading among us as an example of godliness and spiritual maturity. When the pastors and congregation identify this man, we we won't be surprised. Because they've already been serving and living a life of faithfulness before us. want to leave you with this thought in conclusion these character qualities even this commitment to the word should be a part of every member's life in this church family this is not just for our spiritual leaders certainly it is directly toward them but it's for each of us so in which of these character commitments do you personally need to grow the most Which one of these does the spirit put his finger on and say, we've got some work to do? Where can you give God praise for the work that he is doing in your life over the last few months? Every man in the church should be aiming at either the office of deacon or elder, their ordinary qualifications. What would currently hinder you from being considered blameless in order to serve in those capacities. God provides these truths for us in order that we might recognize our need and turn to him. For our Christ is the good shepherd and he alone enables us to continue to grow up into him. So where conviction is needed, where you need to grow, repent and turn to him. And where you need hope, Look at Christ, who is our shepherd, who faithfully shepherds the sheep. You're hearing this message as a member of this congregation because God intends for you to grow, to mature, to grow up, to help other believers walk with him. How are you doing in that? Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, for your instruction to us, your people. Lord, we're thankful even for the chance to consider leadership as presented in this letter. Lord, we know that there are many, many ways where we fail to meet the standard of our Christ. And yet we want to grow to look more and more like him. Help us to consider those areas where we haven't been as disciplined or as intentional in pursuing growth. Help us to strive to help one another. Help us to lean into the ordinary means of our growth. Help us to commit this to prayer, to search your word, to invite others to help us grow. Father, we want to be a God-honoring church that is growing in health, that is seeing leaders raised up among us, Help us to be committed to that as well. You love the church. You've given us this instruction because you love us. Help us to hear it in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.